Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 through 17 today. Uh, Last week we saw this account where Jesus heals a, a paralytic. But before he heals the man, he did the more difficult thing. That is that Jesus forgave his sins. In fact, Jesus consistently in the Bible places a priority on forgiveness of sins. Whatever presenting problem you and I might bring to the Lord, he always tells us, sin's the first, come to me in faith, and then you might know what it is to have a restored relationship with me. And so today we meet Levi. Uh, He's another kind of sinner, uh, a a notorious one, you might say. And we find Jesus hanging out with the likes of Levi. And then you notice also pushback from the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And so we're going to read chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And as you turn there, I'll remind you that we believe that the Bible is God's word written. It's the only infallible rule for faith. That is what to believe and practice. That is how to live. So we look at verse 13. Here's God's word. Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's God's word. Let's pray for his help. And now, Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would give to us the ears to hear and the eyes to see what you would have us to hear and what you would have us to see, especially Jesus, our Lord. Father, you know... um, the ordinary sinful crooked stick that stands before you, I pray that you would simply use me as your mouthpiece to proclaim your word for the good of your people, for our growth in grace. In Christ's name, amen. When I was little, uh, there was a, when I say little, I'm going to say five. uh, So I have to preface that so that you don't think I'm too crazy. There was a great show on TV on Friday nights. It, it basically made Friday night for me. It was called The Incredible Hulk. If you're old enough to remember The Incredible Hulk, you'll remember mild-mannered Bill Bixby playing David Banner. And then you'll remember bodybuilder Lou Ferrigno painted green, muscles ripped. He was The Incredible Hulk. Well, for quite a few months on Saturday mornings, I'd wake up after Friday night's episode and I'd ask my dad if he'd rip up a a t-shirt for me so that I could wear it around the house. And I would put that thing on with shorts, bare feet, and I'd run around the house and I would be flexing, pretending to be the Incredible Hulk. I know, given my current bodybuilder physique, it's probably a little difficult to imagine that back then I didn't actually look like this or like Lou Ferrigno. Skinny legs, skinny arms, but I could pretend. I mention that 
for this reason. I think that children do in their pretending create in their own minds an image of of other beings. And that's part of childhood. But I think that children also do that with Jesus. And that is that they, they create a form of Jesus that may not in fact be accurate to the scriptures. But I think adults do that as well. And what I mean is we create a Jesus in our own mind who approves of the things that we do, who disapproves of the actions of other people, especially the actions that bother me the most. In fact, I think that this is the reason that, that, that Jesus, at least in some form, is still very popular today. But here's the problem. Of course, a, a Jesus who is of your own creation who is made in your own image, will not challenge you, and he will not change you. And that may be fine for people out in the world who who, who do not claim to follow Jesus, but for those who would say, no, he's my Savior, He's, he's my Lord, then of course, that's the reason we walk through the Gospel of Mark, so that you and I might know the real Jesus and see the real Jesus, and by seeing him and knowing him, be both challenged and changed by him. And so the text that's before us simply invites us to embrace Jesus as a friend of sinners. And so we're going to break the passage down into three points this morning. Three kinds of sinners, two kinds of righteous, one kind of Savior. And you'll notice in your outline, I put the term sinners and righteous into quotes. I like to use air quotes. I use that Because uh, that's the language in which the scribes would have spoken. They would have thought of themselves as the righteous. They would have thought of of the Levites, the the tax collectors as the, the sinners. And so they're using it in a technical term. But we're going to use the scriptures to try to find out what what does that really mean? How does the Bible speak of these things? And so the story opens with three kinds of sinners. We have Jesus back in a familiar spot. He's back out at the Sea of Galilee. And what do you know? Crowds are coming to him again, and he's teaching them. Now, this is, of course, the same place where he called his first four disciples. Simon, who we call Peter, and then Andrew, James, and John. And you'll remember that all four of them were fishermen. So this time he's back at the sea, but he's not there to call more fishermen. This time he's there to call someone who is is known to be a notorious sinner in the area. And Jesus teaches as he walks. And he walks by a tax booth and he sees this man named Levi who is called the, the son of Alphaeus. In Matthew's gospel, which is the one just before this one, Matthew says, I'm Levi. I went by two names and, and, and he says, God has used me to write this gospel account. I think when you look at tax collectors in the Bible, it is really hard to understand why they are so hated. Because you and I pay taxes, probably none of us like it, and yet none of us think we're being ripped off differently than the way others are being ripped off. There's a standard formula. Somebody can figure out how much I owe. 
But when Jesus lived, the Roman Empire, which had conquered most of the civilized world, realized that in order to support this vast empire with roads and armies, Rome had to collect taxes. And yet Rome's policy was, we do not employ tax collectors. And so here's the system. They would farm out the collection of taxes to the highest bidder in any particular region. And so this group of investors says, well, we think we can raise $100,000 in Galilee. And this group of investors says, no, we think that we can raise 200000 in Galilee. And so the second group wins the bid. And they have to, of course, go ahead and pay. Because that's the policy. The taxes are due on the front end. And so this little group of investors pools together their money, and they send it off to Rome. And then, of course... They spend the rest of the year trying to make this into a profitable business. And you say, what could possibly go wrong with this system? Everything. One writer said that this is sort of like a small investment firm. And yet the investment firm gets all the support of the, of the occupying Roman army to make sure that the investment is profitable. Levi is a Jew. He actually bears the name of one of the tribes of Israel. So what is it about Levi that is so hated by those who would have been there on those days? Number one, for the Jew, Levi is spiritually unclean. And, and he's, he is that because his whole life is spent interacting with Gentiles. And Jews do not want to interact with Gentiles. They believe Gentiles are unclean, and yet his entire life is doing just that. But secondly, he's really a sellout. He's a sellout in their eyes because everything about his investment is is helping to strengthen and empower the occupying army of Rome. And so if you mystically would imagine that the Taliban invaded Alabama, and then the Taliban rules over Alabama, And your buddy from high school decides to go work for the Taliban in order to raise money to make sure they can continue to rule in the state of Alabama. You go, well, I now can start to understand. Number three, of course, is that taxes and this system is given to the highest bidder. And so if he's going to make it profitable throughout the rest of the year, he's got to overcharge his own people. Oh, he's down by the sea. I recognize that you caught 40 fish today. Well, you know, Rome is now charging $7 per fish as a way of duty and tax. $280, that's what you owe. Wait a second, Levi. Last week it was $2 per fish. I know, calculation went up, $7 now. Go ahead and pay up. And so in that state of of acting and living this way, Levi represents for us the first of the three kinds of sinners. That is, he is a sinner who has no category, no conscience of what it means to be a sinner. If you live in this world, you and I encounter people like this all the time. It doesn't mean that they are hard-hearted or obstinate about the fact that they have sins. They literally do not have a category or vocabulary for that point. And so if you were to say to that person, well, you know, you're a sinner, then they would say, no, I'm not, because I'm not like Ted Bundy. I'm not like Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not a serial killer, because when you say the word sinner, people naturally think of the worst of the worst. And here's why that matters. 
Because there are people all around you that you work with, that you go to class with, that live next door to you, and they may be fairly moral people. They do their work. They're faithful to their spouse. They're trying to be productive members of society. But listen, in the South, we need to be very clear that moral decency does not equal Christian. In fact, a Christian is a person who knows his need and genuinely puts his faith in Christ. And so as a believer, what we can do is is affirm this this moral decency in this person simply because it is bearing the image of God. But we should also acknowledge they're not without sin. And this person is not without the need of a Savior. And then on the other side of that same coin, as Christians, you and I must not be those who imitate the mistakes of the religious people in Jesus' day. I want to be uber-holy. So therefore, I'm going to make sure that I don't come anywhere close to somebody who might be a sinner, lest they contaminate me. You don't treat these people like your pet project. They're human beings. You don't try to argue them into submission or beat them over the head with Christ. In fact, if you hope that the Lord would bring this person to saving faith in Christ, then just think in terms of time and relationship and prayer. But most of all, think in terms of the grace of God. Because you have no idea what circumstances God will bring into their life. You have no idea what he might bring into your own life that would give you the opportunity to speak of the hope that is within you. And when that opportunity comes, just speak. If you would embrace Jesus as a friend of sinners, you need to see that he's willing and able to reach those who have no category for sin at all. But you notice in the passage that Jesus looks at Levi and he simply says, verse 14, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Luke tells the exact same story in Luke chapter 5 and he says, leaving everything, Levi arose and followed him, which is actually very important. Everything about Levi's life changes right here. He is a man who has virtually sold his reputation and his life to the prospect of making money at all costs. And so for Levi to to turn and to follow Christ is to say, I'm going to lay down my first love, which has always been money. In fact, unlike the fishermen of chapter 1, who could go back and fish with a good conscience, Levi will never return to this former career, which points us to the second kind of sinner. That is one who knows he's sick. Look at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Levi hosts a a party for Jesus and for his own friends. And who are Levi's friends? They're the other tax collectors, the other guys who worked with him for years. I mean, who are the friends of the people who are the religious outcasts? It's the other religious outcasts. And then you wonder, why did Levi do this? Like, you want to really invite Jesus to meet these people? He did it because his own heart had changed. 
In fact, he's become the kind of sinner who recognizes how sick he is, how much he needs his own healing. And Mark, as I've said, calls them sinners in a technical term because that's how the scribes would have spoken of him with all these social and spiritual connotations. In fact, what these are to the, to the religious leaders are the outcasts, the low class, the despised of society. And yet that phrase that Mark uses, many followed him, is also a very technical term. It's, it's discipleship language. Which is to say, Levi isn't the only one who found his own need on that day and saw the Christ who was offering mercy other notorious sinners come as, as well. And so if you and I would imagine this in our own modern context, here is the director of Planned Parenthood. Here's the Hollywood mistress. Here's the man in your town who owns four strip clubs. Here's the person who's been, just a few weeks ago, angrily protesting for the LGBTQ community. And Jesus is comfortable with them? He's comfortable with sinners? (laughs) He's completely willing to spend time with them. And so it is that the very same thing, the, the very quality that bothers the religious is deeply comforting to those who know they're sick. To be very clear, many of these having lunch with Jesus know they're sick. And you wonder what the conversation was like on that day. I suspect that Levi and his friends began to speak with a newfound, unguarded humility. And Jesus began to speak, as he always does, with a heart of compassion and mercy, but also a new path ahead. To be sure, Jesus is not soft on sin. There's nowhere in the Bible that he's soft on sin. Jesus wouldn't have said, well, I mean, of course, stealing from your country, man, that's understandable. You came from a house where your dad was always talking about money. He was sort of a greedy guy anyway. I mean, it's just the family tradition. No, Jesus would have said, yeah, you are so greedy. It's a testament to how sick your heart really is. But God is so merciful. He is so ready to forgive a sinner who would come in faith. Friends, if you would embrace Jesus as a friend of sinners, you need to see that you are one. And that your condition is so much worse than you would initially think. But that Jesus is so much more willing and able to heal you than you could ever dare hope. The third kind of sinner is the kind who denies that he is one. Take a look at number verse 16. The scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Obviously, the one who asked that question has already made the determination in his or her own heart. Well, clearly, I'm not one. 
The scribes of the Pharisees, these are the religious of the religious, and they've carved out a world in which they tell themselves, oh, yes, I hold a very high view of God. But in fact, they hold a much higher view of themselves. And self-consumed and self-important, they have no eyes to see the character and the majesty of God. And so this third kind of sinner puts himself on a high perch so that he's always above others. And from that vantage point, it is impossible to see who God really is. All he can see is that everybody else is beneath me. This is where points one and point two begin to flow together. Because there's not just three kind of sinners in a manner of speaking. There's two kinds of righteous And what I mean is that that third kind of sinner, the one who refuses to think he is, is also the quote-unquote righteous. He's the self-righteous. And the self-righteous is the most dangerous kind of sinner because his heart is, is resistant to help and salvation. He or she lives their entire life by comparison. Well, I'm doing better than her, doing better than him, doing better than them. At least my sins are not like hers or his or theirs. And so from this perch of perceived goodness, as you glare down at everyone else, when you stare downward, believing that others are beneath you, you actually lose the capacity to evaluate where you are in relation to God. And so this downward glare makes it impossible to see yourself as desperately far from God. In fact, self-righteousness always ensures that you never do really look up because you think you're already there. That's why one pastor said that self-righteousness is the premier enemy of the work of God because it crushes your seeking of grace and it crushes your excitement of grace. For those who would want to minister to those around them, you and I should all know that self-righteousness always crushes ministry as well because you can't minister to those that you subtly despise. No one gives grace better than one who knows his need. And so a right understanding of the gospel begins with awareness of personal need let's think about these three categories again the person who doesn't know the category of sin is unaware of that sin he can or she can still be made aware of their sin and the beautiful part of course the second one who knows their need who knows their spiritual sickness is actually humbly looking right now for the opportunity to be healed but the self-righteous heart is the heart that actively resists the honest diagnosis of need Which is why Jesus in verse 17 says, let me put this in medical terms for you. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. A person who who doesn't know their need can still be made aware of the condition. you've You've got cancer. The person who knows they are sick right now is currently running to the doctor, I'm sure. But the person who thinks he's healthy never does run to the doctor. I mean, think about this. Nobody ever says, you know, I feel great. I don't have any pains. I don't have any weakness. My head feels good. My stomach feels good. I think I'll go to the doctor. 
If you think you're well, you just don't go looking for healing. Which is what makes self-righteousness so deadly. It's completely delusional. Which makes it the cancer that you didn't know you had. And then even when it's diagnosed for you by the scriptures, you say, hmm, that's fantastic. That's somebody else's problem. Glad it's not mine. In that sense, it always makes you resist your own sense of need. If you and I would be spared this blindness, we need to examine the question that they ask one more time. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why? Because if Jesus doesn't eat with sinners, he's eating alone. To boil it all down, spiritually speaking, there's actually only two kinds of people. There's Jesus and there's sinners. And some of us mistakenly think, no, I actually think there's three. There's Jesus. Then there's the bad sinners. And then there's the better sinners. Why is he eating with sinners? Like that. And we will always classify ourselves as a variety of sinner that's somehow better than another variety. And Jesus could have said, you know, the reason I'm eating with sinners is because I'm the Christ. And that's what I came to do. To have fellowship with those who could never have fellowship with Almighty God. Praise God, Jesus would eat with me. The other kind of righteous is the true righteousness of God. And the Bible says that the only way that you can have that true righteousness is by faith. That is trusting in the goodness and the perfection and the sacrifice of Jesus and him alone. If you've ever read Romans 3 and 4 and 5, this is what it's all about. That all really have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that those who would cling to Jesus in faith are granted a righteousness that is not theirs, but it comes from him. What is righteousness? Why do we keep using that phrase? It's the right to stand before God and to be received or welcomed into his presence. Though you personally are unworthy, you can be dearly loved and accepted by the king. So that those who are counted as righteous before this awesomely holy God are simply those who have faith in the Lord Jesus. In him alone, you can stand before God. And so when it comes to true righteousness, I can summarize the Bible basically in four statements. The Bible says that God demands true righteousness. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God achieves true righteousness. In the gospel, God reveals true righteousness. And then God gives Or he grants true righteousness to those who come to Jesus by faith. Yes, figuratively speaking, there's two kinds of righteous. And those who do not understand the righteousness of God as provided for you in Christ will always be compelled to try to find a kind of righteousness or drum up a kind of righteousness on their own to get it somewhere else. Some other way to justify your own existence. What do you use to justify your existence? How would you be able to figure that out? What do you brag about? What do you humble brag about? What do you take pride in? 
What do you look down upon others about? Embrace Jesus as a friend of sinners. So we have three kinds of sinners and we have two kinds of righteous. Now let's close with one kind of Savior. There is actually woven into this passage a lot of irony. By those who are really thinking they're holy, Jesus is accused of not being holy enough. In other words, not living up to the expectations of what they think is holiness. And so this actually becomes a derogatory term. Well, you know, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Of course, the joyous irony is the very thing that makes the religious people despise him is what makes the contrite, brokenhearted love him. That's why you must never outgrow that broken heart. You must never outgrow the, the clarity that your sickness was, was a kind which led to death. You must never outgrow Christ as the one and only remedy for this disease. J.C. Ryle writing on our tendency to want to move past Christ, wanting to move on to religiousness, would say this, diets and exercise are good for those who are recovering. But they are not suitable for a man laboring under a mortal disease. If Jesus will be your friend as a sinner, you must recognize that you were languishing and you would still be languishing on your own deathbed. And the longer you walk with Christ, the more easy it can be to begin to think of yourself as a religious person. And by being a religious person to begin to forget that you are a sinner. To start, start counting your own sins favorably and the sins of others as disgusting. To begin to put yourself on a self-righteous perch and despise sinners who are not like you. To fear sinners. To hope that none of them would ever come here. To hope that none of them would ever sit next to me and make me feel uncomfortable or ever corrupt my children who have sin in their hearts already. <laughs> what kind of Savior do you think you need? The kind who comes to people who are already washed or the kind who comes to those who are filthy and dirty and, and washes? Do not be surprised. Or bothered if Jesus is a friend of sinners. I don't care how far along you get in your Christian growth or your maturity. You will always need one kind of Savior. The, sign, the kind who's willing to sit down and have fellowship with the despised and the hopeless and the outcast. You see friends, Jesus didn't just count himself a friend of sinners in life. He also did it in death. When he hangs on the cross, and just before he is about to give up his spirit to Almighty God, he says, oh, I think I'll befriend one more sinner, this thief beside me on the cross. And he welcomes the contrite, brokenhearted thief into the eternal kingdom. You need one kind of Savior. And that is the kind who befriends sinners and saves them both in life and in death. Let's give thanks to God for his word. Oh Lord, we thank you that, that you have shown yourself to befriend sinners like us. And not just in life, but even as we walk to the grave. You show yourself faithful in that way. We pray that you would give comfort to all of us. Help us to see and know you through your word. 
And would you afflict us where we are too comfortable and comfort us where we are too deeply afflicted. We pray through the help of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.